Peace be upon you. So there's a term in cellular biology called programmed cell death or apoptosis. And this is a process where a cell will self-destruct. And this can come from an external stimuli or internally encoded within the genetics of the, the cell itself, where it's programmed to self-destruct. Uh, either for the good of the organism or to be used for its own component parts uh, for other aspects. And it's estimated that each adult human being loses between 50 and 70 billion cells a day because of this program cell death. And it goes to show that in order to uh, grow, to develop, that death is fundamental to that process. And um, if you go on YouTube, you can watch uh, this apoptosis in action, and it's absolutely fascinating. Um, you'll see a self right before your eyes self-destruct to its component parts and just be uh, turned to nothing, uh, in essence. And um, one of the popular examples is in uh, human development. When we're first being developed, our fingers and toes are webbed. And at a certain stage within development, the uh, cells that are webbing our fingers and toes internally decide that it's time for them to terminate their life in order for our digits to be uh, free, uh, to no longer be webbed. And you can see this in action. Uh, another example is in metamorphosis. Uh, when a larva goes into a cocoon and comes out as an adult, you can see that the structure from the larva to its end product are so fundamentally different that there's nothing that you could look at the larva and say, yes, there's going to be a wasp or a, a butterfly. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, during a metamorphosis of a caterpillar to a butterfly, the only component parts that are left are like the bare minimum, the uh, the, the heart, uh, some of the respiratory tissues, uh, some of the brain. But aside from that, everything is dissolved into mush. Uh, it's into a liquid, and then it's all reassembled into this new structure, this butterfly that is uh, airborne, uh, is no longer uh, tied to the ground, no longer uh, limited to uh, where it can crawl to. And it's an absolutely fascinating process, but it goes to show that in order for us to have growth, there needs to be change. And in order for us to have change, something has to give. Something has to give its life in order for us to uh, be able to change. And um, I'm going to quote a cellular biologist. It says, the idea that cells take an active part in their own death comes from an observation that in certain cases, a cell has to make a new molecule in order to die. So the cell realizes that it wants to change, and it has to generate this molecule in order to perform that change. And it says, if you prevent this, the cell can't die. The cell is participating in its own death because it has to participate to make something in order to die. So the cell in this case is making an active decision in order to evolve, to get into its next phase within the uh, organism. Uh, it has to self-destruct. And the fact that it makes these molecules in order to carry out through this action shows that there is some intent genetically programmed within that cell to carry out such an action. And the, the same analogy applies to our life. In our lives, if we want to change, we have to be willing to sacrifice something. Uh, there is the popular expression, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Meaning you have to either have your cake or you have to choose to eat it, but you cannot have both. And if we want to grow, we want to develop we have to be able to sacrifice something to make the change necessary uh, to be able to achieve what it is that we want. Um, 
there was a show. I don't know if it's still active, but I remember as a kid watching it um, on MTV. It's you know I want to be, and then it fills in a which uh, uh, a marathon runner. I want to be a powerlifter. I want to be a ball- uh, ballet dancer, whatever. And um, what was interesting is they would pair these uh, individuals with professionals, you know, coaches to train them to be able to achieve that dream. And what's fascinating is the amount of time and effort and energy and practice and dedication that's necessary to achieve that dream is always way more than the uh, participant uh, thought it was going to be ahead of time. I mean that, okay, if you want to be on the football team, okay, you want to be, uh, you know, uh, a professional writer or whatever, the time and effort necessary to be able to achieve that is far more than most people are willing to give, meaning that they're only providing lip service. And in order to change, there has to be a real sacrifice. In 254, we read one of the first commandments in the Quran to mankind. It says, recall that Moses said to his people, O my people, you have wronged your souls by worshiping the calf. You must repent to your creator. You shall kill your egos. This is better for you in the sight of your creator. He did redeem you. He is redeemer, most merciful. And God is commanding us here to kill our egos, to actively Give up something in order to make that change. You know, we cannot say, okay, I'm going to have an ego and I'm also going to grow my soul. The two are not compatible. One has to give in order to have the other. Either we're going to grow and develop our souls by killing our ego, or we're going to grow and develop our egos by killing our souls. The two cannot coexist. And um, this is a, a process we have to take action on. And it's not going to be easy. Just like those uh, kids in that TV show, you know, realize the hard work and dedication that was necessary in order to achieve their goal. uh, It's the same for us. In order for us to truly kill our egos, we have to actively be working and pursuing to do uh, just that. And in order to do so, there has to be a key ingredient. And that key ingredient is the desire to want to change. Unless we desire to want to change, it's not going to happen. No different than the uh, cell that wants to go through uh, uh, apoptosis, that it has to create those molecules in order to be able to self-destruct. We have to desire to sacrifice something in order to become the change that we want to see. In 13.11, it says, Shifts of angels take turns staying with each one of you. They are in front of you and behind you. They stay with you and guard you in accordance with God's commands. Thus, God does not change the condition of any people unless they themselves make the decision to change. If God wills any hardship for any people, no force can stop it, for they have none beside him as Lord and Master. So God is telling us, he's telling us the way that our uh, this system works is that God will change the situation for a person once that person makes the active decision to want to change. Once you make that initiative, you make that conscious effort that, yes, I want to change, the next thing is what are we going to have to sacrifice in order to be able to adequately make that change? If we want to kill our uh, egos, what we need to do is to humble ourselves, to be sincere, to follow God's commands. Otherwise, all we're going to do is we're going to be preserving that ego. And we have a choice. In, um, I'm going to skip ahead. In 91, 7 uh, through 10, it says, The soul in him who created it then showed it what is evil and what is good. Successful is one who redeems it. Failing is one who neglects it. So the choice is ours. God has given us the soul and he tells us what's necessary for us to grow and develop our soul. But if we choose to neglect it and to pursue our ego, to pursue the self, to pursue lust, to pursue things that are only going to hurt in uh, the development of our souls, 
then the choice is ours. But if we choose to redeem it, then we have to nurture it. We have to provide it, our soul the ingredients, the nutrients, what it needs in order to survive. And the key ingredient to that is the absolute submission to God alone, uh, to devote our entire worship, our entire devotion when it comes to our salvation to no one else other than God. And um, we see this in an example of uh, David, oh, sorry, uh, with Solomon. Solomon had a choice that was presented to him. And the choice was his. Was he going to grow and develop his uh, uh, soul or was he going to go and uh, develop his uh, ego? And the two, like I said, are at odds with one another. And the examples in chapter 38, verse 30, it reads, So David, we granted Solomon a good and obedient servant. One day he became preoccupied with beautiful horses until the night fell. He then said, I enjoyed the material things more than I enjoyed worshiping my Lord until the sun was gone. Bring them back to bid farewell. He rubbed their legs and necks. We thus put Solomon to the test. We blessed him with vast material wealth, but he steadfastly submitted. So Solomon, when he was uh, uh, the son of David, David was a king. So he was already uh, wealthy to start. But it went to show that when he saw that he was being distracted by the material possessions of this world, instead of in the joy of worshiping God alone, uh, that he made the active decision to bid farewell to his horses. He gave up something that of this world, something that was utterly meaningless to it to the hereafter, in order to grow and develop that soul. And because of that, that God granted him amazing wealth and uh, riches because he knew that this wasn't going to affect his overall submission, that uh, he's proven himself that his priority is only to God. And when we do that, we can sustain more. God can give us more. There's a verse in chapter 14, I believe, verse 7. It says, uh, the more you thank me, the more I give you. In the sense that if the more we're appreciative, the more we thank God, the less distracted we are by the materials of this world, the more God gives us. Because at that point, our souls can handle more. It's not going to be swayed by the material possessions of this world where our priorities are going to get confused. And it's a blessing from God that he limits what he provides to us in exact measurement. Because if he was to give us more than we can handle, we would transgress. We would become unappreciative. And sometimes in order to make this change, you know, because it's tough. It's very tough sometimes to uh, to give up the priorities of this world in preference for the uh, priorities of the hereafter. Uh, it's tough to not be distracted by money, uh, by uh, narcissists. Uh, fame, um, these kind of uh, things that kind of plague society right now, and to focus on the growth and development of our soul, to focus on the hereafter. And we need a catalyst in order to uh, to bring us to that, to bring us to the point where we make the right decision. And sometimes we're going to fail. God gives us the example in the uh, Quran at the time of Prophet Muhammad, where Angel Gabriel uh, told Prophet Muhammad to change the direction of the Qibla. So it reads in chapter 2, verse 142, it says, The fools among the people would say, Why did they change the direction of the Qibla? Say, To God belongs the east and the west. He guides whoever wills in a straight path. We thus made you an impartial community that you may serve as a witness among the people, and the messenger serves as a witness among you. We changed the direction of your original Qibla only to distinguish those among you who readily follow the messenger from those who had turned back on their heels. It was a difficult test, 
but not for those who are guided by God. God never puts your worship to waste. God is compassionate towards the people most merciful. So the believers at the time, they had a preference to where the Ghibla should be. And when Angel Gabriel told Muhammad to change that direction, those people who had that prejudice, had that bias, who were only following via lip service, it was just too difficult for them. But for those who believed, I guarantee it was tough, it was difficult to all of a sudden say, hey, I'm going to face the complete different direction than the original Ghibla. Um, but what it did is it, it allowed them to make that active choice to change. And because of that, you can guarantee that God rewarded them and the growth and development that they achieved in their soul for carrying out such an action um, was something that was way more than anything of this world, any material possessions. And one of the other more common forms of a catalyst in order to facilitate this change, because what a catalyst typically does is it uh, speeds up the process of a change. And sometimes you have to be put into these harsh environments, these harsh conditions in order to really be able to change, to see what you're made of, to realize what is really a value for you. And a lot of times we, you know, come in kicking and screaming because we don't want to be put into these circumstances. We don't want to be put in these conditions where all of a sudden uh, we have to make these hard decisions. But it's through these times that real change takes place. It's interesting. I was watching uh, the Tony Robbins uh, documentary on Netflix. It says, I believe it's called I'm Not Your Guru. And I was kind of taken back with the amount of uh, profanity uh, and yelling that uh, Tony Robbins uh, conducted. And one of the things that he said, he says, this is in order to shock the person to get into the, uh, their reptilian side of their brain. So he can, in essence, uh, it's called neuro, uh, ling linguistic uh, programming, NLP, if I'm not mistaken, uh, to be able to put a message into that reptilian part of their brain in order for that person to facilitate change. And God does the same thing for us. He puts us in these harsh uh, situations, these conditions in order for us to really wake up, to become alert, to, to facilitate that, that, that change that we need in order to grow and develop our souls. No different than the uh, larva that goes into a cocoon that comes out a butterfly. And we see this example where, you know, messengers and believers are put into these conditions. And it's interesting, the symbolism uh, of their condition. Uh, in the example of Joseph, uh, Joseph was turned on by his brothers, thrown into a well as a small child, uh, and left for dead. Now, you can imagine being, you know, wet, dark. Uh, God knows how far that fall was, um, uh, what the, uh, uh, the mentality was at that time. But God reassured Joseph. That, you know, one day he's going to reflect back on this when his brothers don't know and that he's going to survive through this uh, situation. And what happened is some, you know, merchants came by. They saw, hey, there's a boy in here and they uh, sold that boy into slavery. But for that time period, he was in that well. He was in darkness. It looked like there was no hope for him. If you're an outside observer watching this, you would think that this was a hopeless situation. And same thing when the governor's wife schemed against Joseph and uh, falsely accused him. Uh, Joseph's response, he said, My lord, the prison is better than giving in to them. Unless you divert their scheming from me, I may desire them and behave like the ignorant ones. His lord answered his prayer and diverted their scheming from him. He is the hero, the omniscient. Later they saw to it, despite the clear proofs, that they should imprison him for a while. So despite him being in the right, despite him doing, you know, uh, upholding righteous behavior, uh, avoiding uh, committing adultery with uh, the governor's wife, um, God still put him in prison, put him in isolation, darkness, uh, because that was what was necessary for him to go through his metamorphosis, such that when the time came 
and he was to interpret the king's dream, he had the skill sets, the requirements, the fundamental structure in order to become the treasurer of all of Egypt, which was a huge uh, responsibility. He was the uh, Ben Bernanke, uh, Janet Powell, uh, uh, Alan Greenspan of his time, where he was running, in essence, the central depository of all of uh, the holdings of the treasury uh, for Egypt. And because of that, he was able to uh, save his uh, family from uh, famine and you know numerous other people uh, all through Egypt. And that's the reality is that you're going to be put in these situations that are going to seem dire. They're going to seem grim. And if you trust in God and you hold fast to God, God is going to use these opportunities of darkness, of isolation, in order to create a change in you that you cannot possibly imagine. You think, again, that caterpillar, no one is going to look at that caterpillar and think that that's going to turn into a butterfly unless you witness that event before. And it's the same thing. We're going to be in these very um, harsh, uh, enduring circumstances, but it's for our own growth and development. Uh, another example is in Muhammad. Muhammad was uh, isolated in a cave. In 940, it says, if you fail to support him, the messenger, God has already supported him. Thus, when the disbelievers chased him and he was one of two in the cave, he said to his friend, do not worry. God is with us. God then sent down contentment and security upon him and supported him with invisible soldiers. He made the word of the disbelievers lowly. God's word reigns supreme. God is almighty, most wise. And no one is going to think that this is the process that's necessary to have growth and development, to be chased uh, into a cave, to think that, you know, there's people on the other side who want to uh, kill you. Um, that that's what it's going to take to have the growth and development to go through that process, that change, um, to reach new levels. Um, but this is part of God's process, is that if we choose to be in God's kingdom, if we say that, yes, we believe in God, we worship God under all circumstances, that we refrain from any form of idol worship, we have to be put to the test. But the beauty is, when we're put to the test, if we pass, we'll be able to grow and develop to a new uh, status that we could not have possibly perceived before. Um, even another example is in the uh, the people of the cave. In uh, chapter uh, 18, uh, we read about youths uh, who were uh, uh, basically fleeing the persecution at the time of the uh, Nicene Conference, and uh, they isolated th themselves in a cave. And it reads, we narrate to you their history. Truthfully, they were youths who believed in their Lord, and we increased their guidance. We strengthened their heart when they stood up and proclaimed, Our only Lord is the Lord of the heaven and the earth. We will never worship any other God beside him. Otherwise, we would be far astray. Here are people setting up gods beside him. If only they could provide any proof to support their stand. Who is more evil than one who fabricates lies and attributes them to God? Since you wish to avoid them and their worshiping of other than God, let us take refuge in the cave. May your Lord shower you with his mercy and direct you to the right decision. And it continues in verse 20. It says, if they discover you, they will stone you or force you to revert to the religion. Then you can never succeed. So these people were fleeing severe persecution in the sense that these people, if they were, to, uh, if their belief, if they were to be caught, um, uh, they would have been stoned. They would have been persecuted. Uh, thrown in prison. Um, and it was a serious condition. But in order for them to really make that stand, they had to have isolated themselves in that cave. And um, it's during these times of uh, uh, isolation uh, that we're able to have this growth and development. And same thing uh, in the example of Mary. Mary isolated herself to a far location in order for the birth process of Jesus. Uh, Moses, he uh, left Egypt uh, when he was. Uh, they were uh, planning on killing him. And 
this process, it shows that when we go through it, that our only concern, our only desire is to please God. Um, we don't leave because it's the uh, easy path out. Um, in 22.15, it says, If anyone thinks that God cannot support him in this life and the hereafter, let him turn completely to his creator in heaven and sever his dependence on anyone else. He will then see that this plan eliminates anything that bothers him. And this is fundamentally different than uh, avoiding responsibility where you say, hey, I have a hard task and rather than uh, facing it straightforward, uh, I'm going to run away and I'm going to isolate myself and then I'm going to grow and develop my soul. Then I'll come back. No, you have to face things uh, head on. And the examples that are presented, we see that these weren't situations where they fled. These were situations where because of the circumstances, uh, they weren't able uh, uh, they had to be put into uh, isolation. Uh, you know, Muhammad uh, in the cave, uh, the uh, people the cave, um, in the example of uh, what else was there? Uh, uh, Joseph, right, thrown into a well. You know, these were circumstantial events that despite them being righteous, despite them being um, doing a, a righteous behavior, they were put in these circumstances in order for them to evolve. And this is fundamentally different than a hermitism. Where you you know you see these people they uh, travel off to distant lands and they just like they cut off all communication and they just meditate all the time. God actually condemns this behavior in fifty seven twenty seven. It says, subsequent to them, we sent our messengers. We sent Jesus, son of Mary, and we gave him in jail gospel and we placed in the hearts of his followers kindness and mercy. But they invented hermetism, which we never decreed for them. All we asked them to do was to uphold the commandments approved by God, but they did not uphold the message as they should have. Consequently, we gave those who believe among them their recompense while many of them were wicked. So these are people who are fleeing from their responsibility. They're avoiding uh, having to face uh, real life uh, circumstances. And they're thinking that by isolating themselves and just meditating on God, uh, that that's sufficient. And God actually condemns this behavior. And we see an example of one of the messengers who tried to do this. And this is with Jonah. In uh, 2187, it reads, And Zanun, Jonah, the one with the N in his name, abandoned his mission in protest, thinking that we could not control him. He ended up imploring from the darkness of the big fish's belly, There's no God other than you. Be you glorified. I have committed a gross sin. So here's Jonah thinking that he can flee from responsibility. God commanded him to go to the people of Nineveh and uh, proclaim the message. But he refused, and it said he got on a boat thinking that he can flee, and he was swallowed by a fish. And because he implored, because he came to realization that there is no escaping, there is no running away, um, that he was a uh, redeemed. And um, in 6848 it says, You shall steadfastly persevere in carrying out the commands of your Lord. Do not be like Jonah, who called from inside the fish. So we don't want to be in that situation where we're forced into it because we were scared of the outcome. Um You know, we have to be put into these situations, in essence, by choice. And from that, God is going to bring us out. And it's interesting. There's a, uh, uh, I believe we gave a talk on it. It was originally, I heard it from a Joel Osteen. But it's the difference between being buried and being planted. You know, the two from the outside look one and the same. Uh, if you look at a seed who's uh, put into the ground, you know, what's the difference between that and then putting a casket into the ground? And the difference are fundamentally huge uh, in the sense that a someone who's buried, this is a growing process and they're going to come out uh, bigger, stronger uh, than what was put in. And someone who's buried, there is no exit. It's done. It's over. 
And that's the difference between a believer and a disbeliever. A believer is going to be put into these situations and it's going to grow and develop their soul. A disbeliever is going to be put in that situation and they're going to become hopeless, despondent, and become worse off from that situation. But the choice is ultimately up to us. If we do the right things, make the right steps uh, to perfect our religion, when we're put into this situation, we can use it as an opportunity to grow. And it's interesting how as human beings, we want to avoid uh, these, uh, this bad information. Uh, we think that just by being ignorant, uh, that we're able to, uh, uh, deflect, um, the inevitable outcome. And there is an expression for this. It's called the ostrich effect. And it goes to show how adverse people are to information, uh, that is going to be, uh, uh, potentially hurtful or annoying or painful for them. And they did a study where they group, uh, grabbed a group of uh, college students and they told them that, hey, we're going to, you know, test you for this fictitious, um, uh, disease. And they didn't tell them that it's fictitious. They told them it's real. And, uh, half the group, they said, okay, we're going to do a cheek swap. And if you have this condition, the remedy is, uh, pills for two weeks. And the other group, they said, hey, if you have this condition, you have to take pills for life. So the question is, which group was more likely to opt in to be tested for this uh, disease? And what they found out was the group that was told that it's only a two weeks of uh, pills, 52% agreed to do the cheek swab. But in the group that said you have to take pills for the rest of your life, only 21% wanted to do the cheek swab. I mean, the vast majority of people wanted to be ignorant if they had this disease because they don't want to go through the pain, the hardship of having to take a pill for the rest of their life. And even then, someone who said that they could potentially have it, 48% still didn't want to take pills for two weeks. So they were preferring to be in ignorance uh, rather than facing reality. And one of the realities is we are all going to die. At one point, you know, we're going to, uh, this life in this world is going to end. And we're going to be responsible for all of eternity based on the deeds we did in this world. And most people, we don't want to hear that information. You know, we don't want to be uh, upfront about it. We want to just be ignorant. We want to uh, put our head in the sand and avoid uh, taking that in consideration. It's sad that most people, not until death actually approaches, do they actually think about these things. And it's a blessing from God that he gives us a lifelong chance to contemplate, to think, to uh, weigh the evidence, and to make a decision. Um, and that is, it's a huge blessing because the reality is, if we make the wrong decision, this is something we have to pay for for the rest of our lives. And when I say lives, not in this world, for all of eternity. Uh, because the decisions we make in this world, the ramifications of it are infinite meaning every single good deed we do is going to pay us back dividends for all of eternity. And similarly, every single bad thing we do is a uh, credit against us in the hereafter. And it's something that would plague us for all of eternity. So it's absolutely essential that we take this life very seriously. In 627, it reads, If only you could see them when they face the hellfire, they would say then, Woe to us, oh, we wish we could go back and never reject our Lord's revelations and join the believers. As a matter of fact, they only say this because their secrets have been exposed. If they go back, they will commit exactly the same crimes. They are liars. In 3537, it says, They will scream there in our Lord, If you get us out of here, we will work righteousness instead of the works we used to do. Did we not give you a lifelong chance with continuous reminders for those who would take heed? Did you not receive the warner? Therefore, taste the consequences. The transgressors will have no one to help them. 
So these are very serious um, uh, things that we have to take in consideration. We can't be passive. We can't uh, rely on the uh, ostrich effect of uh, sticking our heads, uh, head in the sand and not thinking about these uh, conditions. God is giving us every opportunity to grow and develop, to come closer to God, to kill our egos, to um, uh, grow and develop our souls. And the choice is ours because on the day of judgment, there's one of two outcomes when we're resurrected. Either we are resurrected like locusts, and in 54, 6, and 7, it says, Ignore them. The day will come when the caller will announce a terrible disaster. With their eyes humiliated, they come out of the graves like scattered locusts. And what's fascinating about a locust is a locust is just a uh, grasshopper. But once the population density of grasshoppers reaches a certain threshold where the grasshoppers are literally rubbing against one another, a chemical reaction takes place within the uh, grasshopper, and it makes them cannibalistic. So when a lotus, uh, locusts are um, uh, fleeing, what they're actually doing is they're fleeing from one another and simultaneously trying to cannibalize one another. And that's what it's going to be like on the Day of Judgment for those who do didn't grow and develop their souls. Uh, they're going to be blaming one another, in essence, cannibalizing one another, and also fleeing from one another. In 34:32 reads, the leaders will say to those who follow them, are we the ones who diverted you from the guidance after it came to you? No, it is you who were wicked. The followers will say to their leaders, it was you who schemed night and day, then commanded us to be unappreciative of God and to set up idols to rank with him. They'll be ridden with remorse. When they see the retribution for uh, we will place shackles around the necks of those who disbelieve, are they not justly required for what they did? And in 4047 it reads, as they argue in hell, the followers will say to the leaders, we used to be your followers, can you spare us any part of this hell? The leaders will say, we are all in this together. God is judged among the people. So one of the names for the day of judgment is the day of mutual blaming. Because that's what it's going to be like for the disbelievers. They're going to be blaming one another. Uh, they're going to be fighting one another. And it's going to be absolutely uh, catastrophic. And the other choice is if we grow and develop our souls in this world, we kill our egos, we draw closer to God, we do righteous works, we give to charity, we're going to be resurrected like butterflies. And in 101.4 it reads, that is the day when the, the people come out like swarms of butterflies. And that this life it serves as an opportunity to do the right deeds. So when we're put into, uh, buried into the ground and we come resurrected, that uh, we come resurrected in a better form than we are today. Um, just like a butterfly who goes through metamorphosis, the same thing can happen to us. And I'm um, going to end with just a couple verses in 79.1. It says, The angels who snatch the souls of disbelievers forcibly and those who gently take the souls of the believers joyfully. And you think about the deeds we do in this world it's like a tree that we plant. And if we nurture that tree, we grow and develop it, we're going to be like fruit that just easily comes right off the vine. We're going to be ripe and ready to go. But those who didn't grow and develop their souls, uh, they're going to be like fruit that's uh, unripened. And you're going to have to tug and pull in order to get it off the, uh, the vine. And that's what it's going to happen in this world. If we grow and develop our souls, we're going to ripen our souls. And on the day of uh, resurrection, we're easily going to be uh, taken uh, back to God. But those who didn't grow and develop their souls, the angels are going to forcibly have to snatch their souls. Because just like a fruit that isn't ripened, it's going to be stuck to the vine. And I'm going to read the verse again from the beginning. It's 91, 7 through 10. It says, you, uh, the soul in him who created it then showed him what is evil and what is good. Successful is one who redeems it. Failing is one who neglects it. 
So the choice is ours. Do we want to redeem our soul or do we want to neglect it? Do we want to feed and grow and develop our uh, ego or do we want to grow and develop our soul? And whatever we choose is up to us. But, you know, God creates these situations for us to be able to have real growth, to have a catalyst. And um, if we can uh, rush towards that and uh, embrace it and draw closer to God and have God's assurances, then it's going to be a, a beautiful process. Otherwise, it's going to be uh, very uh, devastating to be like a locust where we're fleeing uh, from our lives and uh, cannibalizing one another. So God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys got comments, questions, hit us up at Quran at gmail.com. And until next time, peace and God bless.